Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Ignatius Press is pleased to announce the first national book club created for Catholic schools. Ignatius Book Club for Catholic Schools was launched to support Catholic schools' dedication to forming the whole child, mind, body, and spirit. Ignatius Book Club for Schools partnered with leading publishers of children's literature to offer the best books and educational materials for all reading levels and interests. Head to ignatiusbookclub.com slash podcast and find wholesome books that delight, inspire, and enrich. Welcome to Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this eighth episode of Hilaire Belloc's classic work, he deals with the Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. As you can imagine, if you've been following the series so far, Belloc's tone is pretty polemical, and you can imagine that he hasn't got much time for the Archbishop of Canterbury, who brought about the religious and theological reformation in England. Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer in the gallery of the English Reformation is the counterpart to Thomas Cromwell. Between them, they might be called the authors of the tragedy, but in very different fashions. Cromwell was the author in the sense of the man who creates. Cranmer was never more than an agent through a willing agent, even in his heart of hearts, an enthusiastic agent. He was a man who hated the Catholic Church and the sacraments, and especially the sacrament of the altar and the Mass. Whereas Cromwell was indifferent to religion, or rather let his sense of religion sink out of his consciousness until it reappeared in his last moments upon the scaffold, in the presence of the death which he so greatly dreaded. Cromwell, of all those who came across Henry VIII as one of his officials, was that one who most mastered the king and who could best boast that the policy of the country was entirely in his hands. Cranmer, of all those who came into official contact with Henry, was the most completely subservient and least able to impose himself on the monarch. But the way in which Cramner was the counterpart of Cromwell in the story of the movement was most noticeable in one particular character. Cromwell, who should by rights be regarded as the chief figure of the time, has not received the full attention he should from popular historians or from the public. But Cranmer has. Cranmer, who was essentially a subsidiary figure, has received the fullest attention. Until quite recently... Any average English Protestant could have told you the central fact about Cranmer, how he was the great Archbishop of Canterbury who helped Henry to break with Rome, how he had made the liturgy of the new Protestant service, and especially how he had been martyred so cruelly under Queen Mary, being burnt alive after a moment's weakness, of which he gloriously repented and which he expiated by his willing and terrible sacrifice. 
especially was one story remembered as one of the principal and popularly traditional things in English history, how he thrust into the fire when he was being burnt that hand which had signed the recantations, saying, this was the hand that did it. Cromwell, by the scale of his intelligence, his understanding of national and international affairs, his strength of will, tenacity of purpose, grasp of detail, all that marks a great statesman, was almost on the level of Bismarck or Richelieu. His extreme vileness and baseness, his brutality and gross cowardice at the end, does not affect this judgment as to his capacity, which he put to such abominable uses. But Cranmer showed little intelligence or foresight. He was devoid of initiative, accepted through fear the various tasks thrust upon him, was always subservient and cowling, by the nature hypocritical and wavering. He did not want to be chaplain to Anne Boleyn in particular, though no doubt he was glad of the income. He did not want to plead for Henry VIII at Rome. He certainly did not want to be made Archbishop of Canterbury. And after being the mere servant of Henry and ready to belie any conviction of his own at Henry's orders, he became the servant of the tyrant Somerset after Henry's death, and then the servant of the man who supplanted that tyrant. Then it was he who pitifully attempted to save his life under Mary by the most abject denials and repudiation of all that he really held at heart. There was one quality, indeed, about Cranmer, which many have mistaken for greatness— and it is the one which we must linger upon, because error in this matter is so common, not only in his case, but in a hundred others. Cranmer had great artistic power. He could frame a sentence of rhythmical and exquisitely beautiful English as no man has been able to do before or since. It is to him that the Anglican Church owes these prayers, the English prayer book, the diction and language of which have given its strong hold upon the national mind. The litany of the English church is his. It's a wonderful document as far as artistry is concerned. Presumably most of the collects, the translation of the prefaces of the mass incorporated into the English service, and many other Catholic prayers similarly incorporated. Cranmer, having such supreme talent and this one line of writing exquisite prose, a modern habit of mind would make us confuse such talent with real greatness. And it is at this point that I beg the reader to pause and consider how false such an attitude really is. Great artistic talent in any direction, as of a poet or a prose writer, a painter or a sculptor or anything else, is hardly inherent to the man. It comes and goes. It is often possessed only for a short phase in his life. It hardly ever colors his character as a whole, and has nothing to do with the moral or intellectual stuff of the mind and soul by which alone men's intrinsic greatness can be measured. Many great artists, perhaps most great artists, have been poor fellows indeed, whom to know was to despise. So it was with Cranmer, and it is further to be remarked that he was one of those artists who can only work in a very limited frame— he wrote great masses of stuff, both in Latin and English, plenty of letters, disputations, reports, and the rest, most of them turgid and none of them remarkable. He only produced this astonishing prose when he sat down to it with great care, thinking about every word and concentrating upon the narrow task before him. And, as is always the case with this kind of talent, he only excelled in short passages." What the man was himself, a brief recital of his life, suffices to show. He was the younger son of a small gentleman, that is, a small squire of land in the English Midlands. He was brought up, therefore, to country sports, 
was always a very good rider and a good shot with the bow, which was odd because he had bad sight, and in reading or writing he had to keep his face close to the paper and peer closely at his work. He was destined for the church simply by way of providing an income for him, as was the custom with the younger sons of most of his class. He was made a member of a very small, insignificant foundation, Jesus College, in what was then the reduced University of Cambridge. He lived there for years, until he was nearly forty. He was about two years older than Henry VIII, but somewhat younger than Cromwell. Leading the obscure life of a scholar with a certain amount of local reputation as an examiner in theology. He had had, before taking holy orders, an adventure which seems not to have been very reputable, but which ended in marriage, with a servant at an inn in Cambridge, and after her early death was taken again back into the fellowship of his college. The violent movement, which had begun as criticism partly scholarly and partly theological of clerical corruption, and which soon turned into a revolt against the church, laid hold of a small but very active minority in Cambridge while he was passing there through early manhood to middle age. But though he certainly sympathized with all attacks upon Catholicism, for he had begun to hate the religion of his upbringing, yet he was too timid to give any active expression to his feelings, for all the official world of England was strongly orthodox, and even after the break with Rome, Henry, as we know, insisted upon the full teaching of Catholic doctrine in everything but the papacy, and on the Mass and the sacraments and everything else in general, he insisted on the Catholic life of his people. Cranmer was at Cambridge when Erasmus was beginning his work there, but he seems not even to have met Erasmus. He was there when Barnes preached his famous revolutionary sermon. He was there when all the small group of enthusiastic religious revolutionaries were running their risks. But he ran no risk himself at all. What brought him into prominence was the fact that two men in whom Henry placed great reliance, Gardiner, a man of great capacity, whom Wolsey had made important, and who was Secretary of State to Henry, and Fox, Gardiner's right-hand man, recommended Cranmer to the king. They were both Cambridge men, and thus knew him well, and they were certainly acquainted with the fact that Cranmer could write, and with his local reputation for reading in theology, and power to argue theological points, could serve as an agent of the king." When, therefore, Cranmer, in a private conversation, supported the idea of appealing to the universities of Europe against the Pope, Henry sent for him and bade him draw up a brief or argument in favor of his divorce. At the same time, Cranmer was put to live in the Boleyn household. At any rate, he becomes Anne Boleyn's chaplain and is sent to Rome to plead the cause of the divorce before the Holy See. And then, when it became clear that Anne would never get rid of her legitimate rival, Queen Catherine, by papal decision, and that she must rely upon an English prelate of Henry's to pronounce the divorce, Cranmer, insignificant though he was, became her obvious candidate for the Archiepiscopal See of Canterbury. Now, at that moment, anything that Anne Boleyn wanted to happen in England did happen. The aged and saintly Archbishop Wareham conveniently died in the year 1532, and Cranmer, having been hurriedly sent for from Italy, was made Archbishop of Canterbury. He was made Archbishop as a Catholic, in full communion with Rome, and by leave of Rome, and took the oath of allegiance to the Pope. But he was put up to make a private declaration that he would perjure himself if necessity arose, since he did not regard his oath to the Pope as binding against the interest of the king. This, of course, was kept secret. 
Cranmer then proceeded at the orders of the king to pronounce Henry's marriage with Catherine Null. He was further ordered to crown Anne Boleyn as queen, and when her child Elizabeth was born, Cranmer baptized her and stood godfather to her. And later, when Henry got tired of Anne Boleyn, Cranmer speedily turned against this woman to whom he owed all his promotion and position and whose household he had been nourished, wormed out of her by feigned friendship some sort of admission of guilt, and betrayed her to Henry. His miserable weakness and subservience was thus guilty of Anne Boleyn's blood. After that, he did his best to help Cromwell secretly in the undermining of Catholicism in the country. He was particularly instrumental in deceiving the king over the new English translation of the Bible, which the king was assured was orthodox, though the most essential words had been mistranslated so as to give scripture and particularly the New Testament a Protestant understanding. But he abandoned Cromwell just as he had abandoned Anne Boleyn, cringing to Henry when Cromwell fell into disfavor. With Henry's later young wife, Catherine Howard, Cranmer played the same exact trick he had played with Anne Boleyn. Catherine Howard represented the strongly Catholic faction, and it was Cranmer who gathered the denunciations against her, who wormed out a confession by feigned friendship and promises of forgiveness, exactly as he had done in the case of Anne Boleyn. And he was guilty of Catherine Howard's blood, as he had been guilty of Anne's. So long as Henry lived... He dared not say anything openly against the Catholic Church. He continued to say Mass with all due pomp and ceremony, much as he had come to loathe the Holy Sacrifice and the Blessed Sacrament. He sent away the German wife, whom he had secretly married, because Henry would not have a married clergy. And up to the very day of the king's death, he played the part of an Orthodox Archbishop of Canterbury, Catholic in everything, save the schism with Rome. During those six years, which saw the first attempted extermination of the Mass and the rebellions of the people all over the place in defense of their old religion, Cranmer was active in defending the tyranny and framing the new Protestant English service, which was to replace the immemorial sacrifice of the Mass. His name comes first in the list of those who proposed to make Lady Jane Grey queen in order to keep out the legitimate heiress Mary, and then when Mary was triumphantly brought into power on a wave of popular enthusiasm for her and for the Church, he makes abject apology in order to save his life. But at that moment, he was stung into the single action, the only one in his career, which shows even a little bit of hesitating courage. He strongly denied in private that he had ever said Mass at the Queen's orders. Men, knowing his wretched character, had taken it for granted that he would veer around once again. The report annoyed him. He therefore wrote this private protest. But he had not the courage to publish it. It was published in spite of him. He was thrown into prison, tried for heresy, convicted, and deposed. During Cranmer's trial, he shifted and wriggled perpetually, trying as best he could to get out of the position into which his flagrant recent acts had led him, for he had not only worked with all his might to destroy the mass in England, but had actually drawn up a code of laws by which men should be punished with death for accepting the sacrament of the altar. Then, when he had been degraded from his episcopal office and function and condemned, he saw too late that they might really intend to put him to death, though hitherto to execute an archbishop for heresy was a thing unheard of. He therefore made one recantation after another in the hope of saving his life. 
These recantations became stronger and stronger as he went along, until at last he wrote out and published one of great length, in which he stretched to the utmost his professions of remorse and penitence. He threw himself upon the divine mercy, declared he was not worthy to live, said he deserved his fate, especially as he had led so many into error, and compared himself to the penitent thief on the cross, declaring that he would rely upon nothing but the infinite charity of Christ for such a case as his. Up to the last moment, he did not know whether these protestations of his had been effectual or not in deceiving the authorities. On the day fixed for the execution, he was taken to St. Mary's Church in the High Street in Oxford for his recantation to be made as public as possible and for a sermon to be preached upon it. The rule was, of course, that on such public recantation, the prisoner for heresy was pardoned, and Cranmer had his recantation all ready to read. But while he sat there listening to the sermon preached about him, there came a phrase in that sermon which suddenly destroyed his hopes. The preacher had been told by the government to announce their decision that they could not pardon Cranmer after all. He then did a dramatic thing. He went up to read his recantation, but at the most critical point in it he suddenly declared that all he had said in favor of the church and against his former errors was insincere, and he had merely been saying that in order to save his life. Now that he had to die anyhow, he would confess that he was utterly opposed to the Catholic system and the papacy and all the rest of it. Well, there was a great hubbub in the church, in the midst of which the little old man, Cranmer, still very vigorous, though grown bald and nearly blind, ran through the rain with the congregation in the street mob at his heels, and came out by the north gate of the city, and was clasped to the stake which stood in front of Balliol College, and as the smoke rose about him, he was seen to put out his right hand, as he said he would putting it first into the fire as expiation for having signed his recantations. There was an historical and moral point of some importance connected with Cranmer's death. Had the authorities a right to act as they did? The answer would seem to be that technically they had such a right, but that by custom and equity they had not. A heretic, having once been condemned for obstinate heresy and handed over to the secular arm, was from that moment subject to execution. But it had nearly always and everywhere been admitted in practice that, if even after the sentence he recanted, he was to be saved. There were even cases in which a man actually recanting after the fire had been lighted, and obviously acting only under the influence of extreme suffering, was still released in the spirit of mercy. Therefore, it may fairly be urged that Cranmer had, by his abject and repeated recantations, earned the right to live at least— and that in putting him to death the government was breaking an implied contract of mercy. On the other hand, they could plead that the man's crimes had been so enormous, and his position so special of responsibility, that no reprieve for him could be possible. To me personally, the plea has always seemed insufficient. It seems to me unjust to have accepted these numerous recantations, and to have obviously favored their repetition and increasing emphasis, if they had not intended to spare him. Thank you for listening to this episode of Characters of the Reformation. I hope if you are enjoying it, you might share it with others. Remember, it's available free for donor subscribers to my blog. It's just four ninety five a month to subscribe to the podcast section of the blog. Uh, if you would like to subscribe, go to the subscribe tab on the blog and get more information. Thank you for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. 
Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.